0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, what are you doing? You're closing your eyes and you're, you're touching your nose.
0: I'm touching my nose. I am being a proprioception champ right now.
1: Oh, proprioception. Yeah. The subject of today's episode. And this really gets down to what may seem at first like a very basic concept, right? Mm -hmm. Where is our body? Where are we? Where are we in terms of time and space? Where are our arms? Just sort of basic stuff that we take for granted on a near constant basis.
0: Yeah, this at first glance seems kind of like a stoner question. Mm-hmm. Like, where is my body? It's right here. Um, but you're right. If you look at it a little bit closer, it's amazing that we can locate ourselves in our bodies, that we have this meta sense that combines our brain's knowledge of what our muscles are doing with a feel for the size and the shape of your body. Because as we know, um, the way that we take in data and we parse it in our brains is not always... Um, so straightforward, and it's not always actually correct. So, of course, we're going to talk about some weird things happening with proprioception.
1: Just to, to go back to the what you were doing earlier with your nose, though, I'm going to try it myself, and I encourage uh, listeners who are not driving okay, or, let's see. or otherwise engaged to do this as well. Closing my eyes, and then my hand is out to the side, and then I'm going to reach in with my finger, and I'm going to attempt to touch the bridge of my nose. That's Bam, your ear. Bam, and I got it. And That's my your ear. ear. Oh, I can't. There's a headphone over it. But but I would have had the headphone not. I was in. kidding. You
0: actually did get the bridge of your nose. Yeah? Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Good, good, good. So what what was that, that all about? How did I find my nose, right? Because I couldn't see where my nose was. Yeah. I couldn't here, where my I couldn't use echolocation like a bat to determine where my my hand was and then guide it in towards my nose. Um, I couldn't smell where my finger was and then negotiate it into place.
0: Yeah, I was about to say this is not one of those. Here's one of your five senses because we've talked about that. That we pretty limiting to say we have five senses. There's obviously stuff going on beyond that. And if you've ever hovered your hand over a hot iron, you know that automatically, right? You didn't get that sense of heat from licking that hot iron. From smelling it, from tasting it, from touching it, um, from seeing it, there was another thing going on with the nerves in your fingers that were saying, "Hey, here's some data about that object." So that's what this meta sense, this proprioception, is. But you can't get into the meat of it until you kind of talk more about the nuts and bolts of what's happening inside of your body and how that connects your mind and body.
1: Yes, we're talking about American philosopher and psychologist William James. 1842 through 1910, very important thinker, a lot of ideas that were, in, especially in this case, controversial at the time and really ahead of, uh, of, of his time mm-hmm. in terms of the way he was thinking about our experience of reality and how our, our brain engages and all of that. And he came up with a thought experiment involving a bear.
0: Yes. Now, this was covered in a Radiolab episode, but we wanted to bring it up because it is so central to our conversation today. This thought experiment was, imagine you're walking through the woods and a bear attacks, okay?
1: Or just shows up, really. That's that's enough for me.
0: That shows up. And he's wondering (laughs) that feeling, that emotion, that fear, what is that feeling made up of? Where is it really coming from? And so... What he gets into is this idea that it's your body kicking off the sense of fear. In other words, it's not your emotions that you feel at first. It's your body having the response. It reacts to the stimuli first, and then the chain reaction informs your body of how to feel emotionally or your brain how to feel. So this was tested out by the idea that people who are paralyzed from the neck down wouldn't exhibit fear. This is what he thought.
1: Right, because he's uh, again arguing that your body is is essentially feeling what's happening, feeling the fear, and then informing your brain on how to think. And so, if therefore, if the if the body were cut off from sensation, then it would the brain would not have a body to tell it to be afraid of the bear.
0: Right, exactly. And so he thought, thought, okay, well, if you're paralyzed from the neck down, then this should bear out, right? Uh. Uh-huh. Uh, but he finds out that this is not just as cut and dried as he had hoped. This does not, in fact, happen. People who are paralyzed in that gown still experience fear.
1: And and could still be eaten by a bear from just a very physical, literal sense. Yes. Yes. This Do is not also try this part
0: experiment. Your- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. However, some century or so later, uh, neurologist Antonio Damasio, the director of the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California, who is a paraplegic psychologist, thought there might be something to this because he said that uh, his emotions weren't as strong
1: mm-hmm.
0: since um, becoming paralyzed. And so he conducted studies of able-bodied people who became paralyzed and found that they reported this same sense of lessening in feelings, feeling Less sad or less happy as so we bring this up because, once again, we see, as Damasio says, our being is rooted in a body state.
1: Yeah, it comes back uh, again and again, our podcast, to that that idea we rolled out of the uh, the man on a horse versus the centaur. Right. There's the, the old notion that our brain is this rider on a horse. And uh the body just obeys the mind, and that's all there is to it. But the more we understand about how our brain works and how our body works, we see that it's more of a centaur model where the rider and horse are one you can't uh you can't take the brain apart from the body without losing a part of the overall self,
0: yeah, I was thinking about this morning uh um, when I was driving in, I thought, when was the last time I felt like I was just punched in the gut from information I was taking in, yeah. And actually, it wasn't that long ago? And uh, I thought, you know what? That was exactly it. I felt that physical ugh in my stomach, and then I had a cascade of emotions that followed
1: it. Yeah, uh, I think they they brought this up in the Radio Lab episode. Um, well, they they were talking about our own memories of uh, of feeling fear, but it made me think about reading stories in which someone encounters something fearful, uh, which which I frequently find that because I read a lot of horror and suspense, but but when you when you read these stories it's never something like and then randolph encountered a ghost and had the idea in his head that he should feel afraid no it's always the author always describes a visceral reaction mm-hmm. to something horrifying you know hearts are leaping skin is crawling um bowels are maybe voiding but 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 that stuff comes immediately before sometimes separated by seconds, minutes, days, hours, whatever, before they actually are able to uh, assemble what's happening in their mind.
0: Yeah, that's why that that uh, cliche of being punched in the gut is Mm -hmm. so true, because we have an innate sense of this proprioception working on our emotions. Right. Um, So, again, let's talk about proprioception. Uh, What is it? Uh, It is actually stimuli relating to position, posture, equilibrium or our internal conditions, um, it is the sense or rather senses of position and movement of our limbs and trunk, the sense of effort and the sense of force and the sense of heaviness.
1: Yeah. And all of this information coming together in the brain to form a picture of who we are. Well, not, well, not as much who we are in this scenario, but what we are, what our parts are composed of, what those parts are doing and where we physically are. And it's interesting because if you... If you just take any given moment, we tend to fall back on a a visual understanding. Mm -hmm. If If you ask yourself the question, well, what's my body doing and where am I? We think, oh, well, this is me because I see me and I see my surroundings so I know where I am. We tend to think just visually about it, but it's far more complicated than that.
0: Yeah, and that comes down to body schema and this sense of body ownership. So you, in, in body schema, you have this model of where your mind thinks your body is in time and space. And in the paper, An Implicit Body Representation Underlying Human Position Sense, authors Longo and Haggard say that human position sense must refer to a stored body model, And this model has the body's metric properties like body part size and shape. And in their study, they found that without cues from a person's environment or their own muscle movements, and we'll talk more about Mm -hmm. that, that a person's implicit mental map of, say, their hand, when they tried to recreate it for the researchers, was greatly distorted. And it bears out this idea that you can't have just the mental map alone of the body schema to, to really know where you are in time and space. You have to have other clues.
1: Yeah. It, it made me instantly think of game of Thrones for some reason. Um, have you watched any of the the show? Yet? I have. Yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of scenes inevitably, especially when things get a little more, uh, uh, warlike, uh, where you'll have generals staring down at a map and then there'll be pieces on the map representing where the army is mm-hmm. now. For a general to command an army, you're having to depend on uh, that general sending out messages to the to the army to command where they're going to go, and then those individual units uh, in the in the army are sending back messages to the general to let uh, he or she know where the army is, mm-hmm. and then uh, all of that is put on a map, and then the general has a has an idea uh, in his or her head uh, regarding the shape of the army, the formation of the army, where the army uh, is, and where it is going, and not to encourage a, a horse and rider view of the, the mind-body connection, but that's kind of what's happening here. There's all this data coming together and it's in and to, to, and it's really kind of a complicated uh, uh, cognitive process. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the human experience is more like a tapestry. Uh, the more we look at it. But but that's kind of what's going on in, in this uh, in this body schema.
0: Well, yeah, because if you're looking at this map, that these men on the field, right, mm-hmm. you could kind of look at the vestibular and kinesthetic systems as being some of those men. However, they are not proprioception, right? Right. Uh, um, you know, alone, uh, they have to be working in tandem to create that picture. So when we talk about the vestibular system, we're talking about the master controller of our balance and spatial orientation. And when we talk about kinesthetic system, Uh, We're talking more about motion and behavior, or rather even uh, habits of movements like your eyes between the computer screen and your keyboard. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the data that comes in. But according to Joseph Bennington-Castro, and he's writing for io9, quote, comparatively, proprioception has more to do with body position and focuses on the cognitive awareness of the body in space. So it's not just those two elements of vestibular and kinesthetic. And... This kind of gets us into this weird area, too, because um, people will sometimes say, well, sure, proprioception is kind of a meta sense, but it couldn't be like alongside one of the five senses, right? Because when we talk about the five senses, we're talking about experiencing the outside world, whereas proprioception allows us to understand the physical place within that world. So that's. I just want to bring that up. There's a bit of quibbling when we talk about this mm-hmm. as a
1: sense. Well, one thing about it, though, I, I feel like with, with sight, with smell, uh, with hearing, these are all proce- processes that uh, that seem a lot simpler based on that sort of take-it-for-granted everyday mm-hmm. um, experience. But as as we've explored on the show, when you start looking at sight and the way sight works or how smell works or, or how uh, hearing works – all of these are, are far more complicated than we give them credit on a daily basis i mean just on hearing alone you get into the two different ways that you hear the world hearing with uh, uh, with your inner ear hearing with your skull yeah uh, you can you can take just about any of these these senses and you can divide them up into uh, in, into more complicated uh, systems especially touch as we mentioned earlier you can get into all the the various ways that our our sense of touch interacts with the world.
0: I agree. I think that proprioception is just right there alongside with the other senses in the the way that you can view it as pointillism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Each one of those dots creates that picture of whatever that sense is. So it gets us to this idea of how does our brain keep track of our body anyway?
1: Yes. How does it do that thing that it does? We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into that question.
0: All right, we're back and we're going to talk about how our brain keeps track of our body. So uh, we're going to go sort of into the nitty gritty in a second, but let's get this obvious part out of the way when we talk about equilibrium and orientation. Because in humans, gravity, position, orientation, those are all registered by tiny grains called otoliths moving within two fluid filled sacs in the inner ear in response to any change or position and orientation. And their motion is detected by sense hairs. So rotation is detected by the inertial lag of fluid and the semicircular canals acting on the sense hairs. Okay, let's get in the weeds with all that stuff. So you have the central nervous system integrating signals from the canals to perceive rotation in three dimensions. In the meantime, if you're, say, getting off an elevator, Mm -hmm. let's slow-mo this and figure out how your brain is then figuring out how it's transitioning from one place to another and where it is.
1: Right, because, as we've mentioned before, the elevator is magic. The door opens, and we're (laughs) in a different setting, and I suddenly have to figure out where I am, which way is right, which way is left, which way leads to the castle, and which way leads to certain death.
0: At least that's how it is in our building, right? Yes. So that's when you get into this idea that proprioception uses receptors located in the skin, muscles, and joints. And if we slow-mo this, we can see, and we've got a microscope here. Okay. Uh, we're inside actually the, the muscle now. Uh, muscle spindles signaling the angle of related joints and telling the brain, hey, this is going on. And then you get stretch receptors getting in on the game.
1: Yeah. And these are detecting small movements of the limbs. So again, it's just general ideas of what are the limbs doing? What kind of, uh, what kind of movements are taking place? What kind of force is taking place?
0: yeah just another dot in the pointillism picture and then within the tendons that attach to muscles to bones there are proprioceptors called golgi tendon organs which would be clocking the muscle tension and reporting about that
1: yeah this gets into how much force am i exerting right mm-hmm. so which is a you know something that can get a little out of whack if you are say really worn out or maybe inebriated but uh, you need to know how much If you're putting into your uh, efforts.
0: Yeah, you get that sense of effort because all of those different processes are informing, like, okay, this is how much force I'm exerting, as you say. And then that's getting reported to the cerebellum, which um, would then take that information and try to determine the location and the movement of body parts. And finally, it would match that up to the body schema or that stored body model that we talked about. Mm -hmm. But, and here's the rub, Body schema and proprioceptive cues aren't always reliable.
1: Yeah, because especially body schema. We've, de- we've discussed before how the fact that body schema is malleable is key to our success as a tool using organism. Mm-hmm. Because if you remember from our, our episode on tool, using, tool use, when we use a tool, be it an ink pen, a hammer or a battle axe, the brain adapts to that tool and incorporates it into the body schema which works to our advantage, uh, this particular life hack, if you will, when we need to write something, hammer something, or chop someone's head off.
0: So you can see how when someone looks at a rubber hand, for instance, uh. they might think that it's their own. Not initially, of course, but as you say, this idea that something becomes part of you um, is steeped in a study by Marcello Constantini who had subjects view stimulation of a rubber hand, and at the same time, their own hand was touched in the same manner.
1: Okay, so they're, say, seated at a table, Mm -hmm. have your own hand here, there's another rubber hand next to it, Mm -hmm. that hand is being stroked, your hand is being stroked, so you have the visual information of these two arms being stroked, and then you have the, the, the sense data reaching your brain as well of a hand being stroked.
0: Yeah, I mean, they come to feel like that rubber hand is part of their own body, and this is called proprioceptive drift. And it's an example of how easy it is to have a spatial mismatching. And um, in the abstract of the paper that Constantini has, says, current sensory evidence about what is me is interpreted with respect to a prior mental body representation. Hmm. Meaning that this idea of where we are, who we are, is kind of easily messed with.
1: In fact, you can take the same idea and you can uh, you can extrapolate it a little more and actually make the test subject feel as if they have three arms. And for this, we look to a 2011 study from Sweden's Karolinska Institute. Uh, and this, this is pretty pretty amazing. Again, similar, in, in a sense, to the rubber hand illusion. Uh, they created an experiment where subjects had a prosthetic but realistic rubber arm placed right next to their right arm. And then the experimenters uh, started touching both right arms with a brush in the same location, uh, trying to make identical uh, brush strokes in time and location. So similar, again, to what, what we, saw, we saw in the rubber arm. And...
0: And remember, this is a first person view of this yes. they're They're seeing this as their arm, yeah, it's imagine not yourself. separate across the room,
1: right. Imagine yourself at that table looking down at your one left arm, your right arm, and then this plastic right arm there as well, and some stranger is stroking it. um and what what happens is 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 pretty crazy, uh, according to head researcher Arvid Gurustam, what happens is a conflict arises in the brain concerning which of the right hands belongs to the participant's body, which one uh, could expect? What one could expect is that only one of the hands is experienced as one's own, presumably the real arm. But what we found, surprisingly, is that the brain solves this conflict by accepting both right hands as part of the body image and the subject's experience having an extra third arm. So, again, it gets into that same idea of the body schema saying, all right, my the, the end of my left hand is a battle axe now. Okay, we can roll with it. And here the body schema is updating and saying, all right, there's a third arm. sure.
0: And we've seen work. this psychologically before too. Like, how do people accept some some piece of information that is starkly different from what they thought was happening? Well, yeah. they just accept it, right? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of not too, you know, surprising that this would happen. But how do the researchers know for sure that the participant is really accepting this body part as their own?
1: Well, you've got to uh, you got to inflict a little pain.
0: You got to at least bring out a knife (laughs) (laughs) and that's what they did uh they threatened the arm with a knife and uh, they saw the participants a flinch and then you know maybe it was just because they saw a knife so how else would they measure that response well with a galvanic skin response which would measure the amount of sweat um, which of course is one of those things that's a telltale sign of fear
1: now you watched the video. I didn't. Now, I'm imagining the researchers are there gathered around this individual with the third plastic arm there, and they've done some gentle stroking of the, the real arm and the plastic mm-hmm. arm to, to uh, inspire this sense of, of, of having three limbs. And then I imagine one of the researchers reaching under the table, pulling out a dagger, and just stabbing, just nailing that, that third plastic arm to the table so that the dagger you know vibrates and, and quivers, and then the, the test subject just shrieks and, uh, and runs away. Is that what happened? That's
0: exactly what happened. Wow. No, no. But, yeah, kind of. Except for, like, they didn't... Like, you just did this big arm movement. that was big overarching... Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they brought out the knife, and then they brought it up to the hand. Okay. Um, so it wasn't any sudden movement, but, you know, obviously there was an implied threat
1: there. Well, there are probably standards in practice for this sort of experiment. There's a certain way you have to threaten your test subjects with a knife.
0: Well, and they explored that. They explored this idea... More by having someone um, have a mannequin right across from them and then having these little uh, goggles on that gave them the vision of being the mannequin. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, they're they're wearing basically virtual reality goggles yes. that put them in the point of view of the mannequin.
0: Yes, they see the mannequin and you can the video is great because it shows how they're it's this view of looking down at their mannequin body. Mm-hmm. And so the same sorts of things happen. They have a paintbrush that's stroking them gently, and then of course all of their responses are being measured. Uh, and then the knife comes out and it goes <laughs> right straight across Aww. the stomach. And so, again, what you're doing here is you're removing that distance. Um, you're changing it from a, a third-person narrative, as we discussed before, to a first-person narrative.
1: Yeah, this is fascinating. I recently... Uh, um wrote a blog post about a recent study where they they t- took a similar situation they had uh, a lecture giving a, a lecture about some uh, some topic and they had individuals that were uh, that were in a they, everyone was in a virtual reality environment to view this lecture but some people had that third person sort of like that over-the-shoulder video game mm-hmm. persona like like looking at a mannequin sitting in front of you and the others had that first person uh, view. And they found afterwards that the people with the first person view had better comprehension of the material in the lecture versus the third person. Which, again, you take the, the human experience out of the body experience and you lose something. In this case, um, uh, memory, comprehension of what is experienced in that body.
0: Right. So that that distance, that objectifying doesn't mean it's part of you, so it's not as important. So the same mm-hmm. thing with mannequin. All of a sudden, if you are looking at yourself as a mannequin, you're the first person. You're you're the one who's having the knife dragged across your chest, and you're going to show that in a fear response. Um, so we're actually going to be touching on this a little bit in the sense of unconscious commonality uh, in the next episode in which we talk about uh, nominative determinism, essentially names forming our personalities. Mm-hmm. But, um, but even then, when you see someone having the same name as you, you feel connected to them you get a little bit closer to that first person experience right yeah and we see this uh, in our body schema and then we see it play out uh, in our unconscious
1: which brings us to the subject of -of out-of-body experiences because ultimately an out-of-body experience which which does exist as an experience uh, you know, it's it's not a situation where your soul is drifting away from your your body or your your you know your your mind is about to travel the astral plane, but the experience of existing outside of your body for brief uh, periods is is a reality, and it's kind of the the ultimate uh, in in leaving the body schema, leaving uh, proprioception behind.
0: Right, because. Um, we we talked about this in different senses before. Like, um, if you have ever experienced sleep paralysis, yes. what is that but a misfiring of your brain and your muscles? You're waking up, but your brain's not quite there yet, and so you can't move your body yet. Um, in the same way, proprioception can go awry in out-of-body out experiences. Essentially, that is the basis for them. And this has been looked at in pilots because... Pilots, they can experience the sensation of being outside of their bodies in something called G lock. That's called gravity induced loss of consciousness. And this occurs frequently with fighter pilots, right?
1: Yeah, if you've ever played a uh, fighter simulator, which is my main uh, tie in to uh, to this sort of stuff since I've never piloted a plane, uh, you you know, if you, you pull too many G's, you're going to experience, say, a red out where all the blood surges to your head. You can get a gray out or even a blackout as the the blood leaves your brain and heads uh, towards your abdomen. Uh, And, of course, our brain needs to have blood to function. And so if enough blood leaves the brain, if you pull too many Gs, Mm -hmm. you black out. You lose consciousness. But some other interesting stuff can occur there as well, as explored by Dr. James Winery, um and this is the the uh, the individual who was uh, interviewed on that episode of Radio Lab we were mentioned earlier specifically in a section of that episode titled Out of the Body Roger.
0: Yeah, he looked at um these pilots experiencing visions, okay? Cuz as you say they they get through these different red, gray and then blackouts mm-hmm. of consciousness. And along with them they get different ideas of what's going on or their brains are presenting maybe a um a tunnel sort of vision going on in a gray blackout. But those people, those pilots who experienced blackouts, some of them said, hey, I had some weird vision.
1: Yeah, like it's it's one thing to, like some of the examples where I found myself on the wing of the plane looking at it myself, and that's... That's weird and interesting. Yeah. And, but it's more based in, alright, the reality of where you were. You just saw yourself outside of yourself. You were kind of viewing that, uh, model of the self that we talked about earlier instead of experiencing it from within. Or, or simply blacking out. Alright, that's fine too. But, but some of the stories, for instance, were you're blacking out and suddenly you're fishing <laughs> on a river somewhere, which sounds so cinematic yeah. and made up that it, it, uh, I I wouldn't have even bought that idea had I seen it in a movie. Like our hero blacks out while fighting uh, the Germans in the air, and suddenly he's back home fishing. I would have said that's complete hooey. But that's exactly the type of experience that Winery uh, came across in his studies.
0: Yeah, they're fishing. There's another one in which the guy was shopping for ice cream. I love that one. So what I thought was interesting about both of these examples is that in this dream, or what they call vision, um, they were struggling with motor control they Mm -hmm. were struggling with the real they were struggling to try to reach into that ice cream freezer to extract the ice cream and so what you see here i think is this idea that their brain is trying to square where it is in the motor control necessary to to help it try to get its proprioception back
1: Right. The body, the person, the pilot is in a situation where they're trying to pull back on the controls and gain control of the aircraft again, but they're they're losing consciousness. They're blacking out. The brain is essentially losing not only a visual understanding of where the, the mm-hmm. individual is, but also a uh, preoperceptive understanding of, of, of what's going on. And therefore, it has to fill in the blanks. Uh, we, we've, we've run across examples of this in the podcast before, where the brain has to, and, and actually on a regular basis, fill in the missing pieces in its perception of the of reality.
0: Now, 40 of the subjects who reported out-of-body experiences, um, a subset of them had that kind of white lights at the end of a tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. And we've heard about this before, right? Um, turns out they were out the longest. And again, that gives us a clue about the sort of um, distance that they were from their bodies. The longer they're out, perhaps mm-hmm. the less sort of data that they're getting and the less that their minds can create a picture of where they are. And the idea is that they're just so disassociated disassociated from their bodies that their minds can't really pin them to space and time. And in that absence, that's the story that's created.
1: Yeah. Um, It's interesting. In a 2005 study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, the researchers actually used uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation of the temporoparietal junction. Yeah. And they were able to impair the mental transformation of the body and healthy volunteers, essentially inducing an out-of-body experience. And... Uh did a recent episode, this was with uh, the, the the guys from uh, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, mm-hmm. came on and we did one about shadow people, similar situation there. Uh, electrical stimulation of the TPJ, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, concerns self-processing, uh, self-other distinction, multi body integration. There's no one part of the brain that's involved in proprioception, but uh, but certainly the TPJ is in the mix. And in this case, uh, in this so one particular study that we mentioned in that episode, uh, by electronically stimulating this part of the brain, mm-hmm. they're able to induce the perception that uh, that there is another you, a sort of stranger you uh just uh, like a few inches or less away from your body. so just able to yeah. take the the idea of who we are and where we are and skew it just a little bit.
0: Yeah. If anybody's interested in reading a bit more about this, John Horgan has a great book called Rational Mysticism, and he interviews Michael Persinger, who is one of the people mm-hmm. who uses those transcranial magnets and uh, who has looked into this idea of ghosts,
1: ah, right? This is the God Helmet, guy.
0: The God Helmet, right. And and um, I think you, you can get a good sense of how easy it is to kind of mess with someone's reality by, by warping it a little bit in the magnetic field there. Um but anyway, uh yeah, I mean it's 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 fascinating to me just because we take it for granted this idea that we're rooted in our body and we are who we are, and we're just moving through time and space. But um, you know, to go back to Walter James and that bare thought experiment, I think it says so much about how we perceive and color our emotions and experiences of life through our body.
1: yeah, one of the things I love about uh, proprioception is that essentially, this is key to this uh, embodied, consistent self uh, that we perceive at the center of a changing universe, which is part and partial to everything from the the you know, illusion of the soul to personal importance. I mean, so much of the human experience uh, hinges on this sense.
0: Indeed, it does. I'm hinging on it right now.
1: Are you? Okay. It, yeah. Hinge on, hinge on. So there you have it. I hope that forces everyone to just take a, a few seconds during the course of your day to just stop and think about how complicated this, uh, this scenario is in which we, we know exactly where we are and what our body is doing. Uh, it's, uh, again, it sounds a, a bit like stoner talk, but it's it's truly amazing that we know where we are and know where our body is.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of when I was little, I used to do, I guess what you would call a thought experiment. I used to imagine myself on a grid mm-hmm. and I would imagine myself getting tiny, 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 tiny and then getting huge. And the sense of that scale in my own mind and body, I used to think that I could physically feel those effects because I was insane. <laughs> um, and I was six years old, but, uh, but it is kind of one of those things that it's just, amazing when you look at it a little bit closer and if you guys have any personal experiences with this whether it's out of body experiences or just ever feeling sort of um disassociated with your body we would love to hear about it
1: yes indeed uh so be sure to get in touch with us and share those stories with us or just your general thoughts on this topic as always the best place to go for the stuff to blow your mind experience is stuff to That's where uh, you will find all the latest podcast episodes and all the old podcast episodes going all the way back to the beginning. You'll find... Um, over a thousand blog posts, you'll th- find uh, a whole bunch of videos, as well as links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Mind Stuff Show, that's our name on YouTube. Um, and, uh, Julie, is there another way they can reach out to us, perhaps with their minds, or am I forgetting something?
0: Well, their minds and their bodies, specifically, like, just tapping out an email. Ah. And you can do that at blowthemind at discovery.com.